Okay, let me talk. Are we getting anything? Well, people online, I hope you're getting something here. So, so as you said, the children of Israel came across and they built an altar at Gilgal, you know, to, to their God. Not like we would. Ours would be huge and beautiful and everything like D.C. And any time you see a big thing built by, by humans, um, you know, here's where we cross and, and get a copy of the book of Joshua in the gift shop. Yours today for only $19.99 or two for $49.99. So no one was awake for that one. <laughs> Come on, people, help me out here. No one can do addition. I need my son back in here. At least he could do the addition. Nineteen forty. Hey, that's more than double, you know. But they took these 12 rocks and they stacked them so they could come back later and tell stories and tell those stories to their grandkids and kids and all that. And Lisa's giving me the thumbs up. So online people, you're happy now. I don't know what the deal was, but we're happy. Okay. But the children would come by and see these rocks out in the middle of the desert don't, don't belong there. And they'd say, well, what are those rocks for? And they would tell the story over and over. And afterward, the priest, you know, came out of the river and it started flowing again, back to flood stage. So all the water's coming back. Imagine the water coming back down, the roar of that water. So all of Canaan had heard about what Israel, Israel had done. All of Canaan is, I mean, they, you know, 10 miles of river driving up, uh, drying up in, in that kind of society, that's a big deal. So rumors were all going out. And they had heard the Israelites were camped out over there. And, and these people have been worshiping gods that... Uh, and do an unspeakable thing that we would never consider during their worship to these so-called gods that weren't really uh, gods. And 400 years earlier, God had, uh, you know, had told Abram, uh, Abraham that this land would be for him and his descendants. But first, he, may tr you know, he must try to, to change these people. But they didn't change. They didn't change. And God said, well, I, I'm eventually going to have to judge them. And God has the right to do that. God has the right because he is God. And he will judge the nations for what they've done. So Joshua 5, chapter 1, it says, Now all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until he had crossed over. So now in the story you will see them, you know, kind of... Um, jump from saying they back to we, and then they start saying they and we, and, and it goes back and forth. Uh, they don't care. They were there. They wrote this book down. They, they, you know, they wrote the, the stories. They didn't wait till, you know, many, many, many years later to write it down. They actually wrote it down. And it says that their hearts melted, talking about the kings, their hearts melted and no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, I looked up the words hearts melted or their hearts melted, and I wanted to know kind of what, what was the, the attitude behind those words? What, what, what did they really mean? And, you know, it's like their will to fight just left them. And, you know, and melted means, well, melted, you know. It just kind of goes away. The iron kind of, you know, their, 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 their resolve starts to dissolve. Like heat melts metal. My son Grayson, he can have a pretty strong will every now and then, you know? Brandon, you just give him a dirty look, or, or not a dirty look, but you just give him that, that parental look, you know? And he just melts down. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we're like, stop saying you're sorry. You don't even know what I'm going to say yet, you know? But Grayson, he gets all, mm, and he gets those fists all balled up, and he tenses all up, and he just goes, 
you know, and breathes really hard and, and so forth. And, and, and you know, and he gets, he gets that way. And sometimes the only way you can get him to stop is to get down on his level, grab his hands, and just put them in your own hands. And then you just look at him. And his heart starts melting. His hands start relaxing. It's like his resolve just kind of melts away. Because if you fuss at him too long, he just stays that way. It doesn't work. You know, you got to try something different on him. But for these kings, all, you know, all they can do is stay inside Jericho because they all ran to Jericho and their hope, uh, their hope relies on this big, huge wall. These, you know, uh, these two walls that have that section in the middle, that's where their hope is relying on. Now, be it, imagine being a family on a hill near the, the Jordan River and you got a house up there and, and you look down and, and all of a sudden you, you notice the water's stopped. And then the ground kind of dries up. And then like a herd of locusts or buffalo, the Israelites, anywhere from one to two and a half to four million, depending on how you count, all these people start coming across. And next week, we're going to read how Jericho was, was literally scared to death, yet they did not repent one bit. They didn't turn from their ways. This is like the world today, wouldn't you say? Man, warning after warning after warning, but people just wait. Sometimes they wait until it's too late. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the scripture says, and yet they, they were without wisdom. They were, they were in the walls and they were shaken with fear and yet they refused to acknowledge the true God. They had heard the stories from 40 years before and now they're witnessing it right now. You know, you know the Israelite God go before them and do this and they're still holding on to the resolve of wanting to fight except for their hearts they melted because the spirit is just kind of downtrodden. You ever had the wind knocked out of you? That's kind of how they're feeling, you know. I can remember as a, as a high schooler going on a, on a junior high trip. I was a, a junior leader, you know. I was all excited. I was like, you know, I'm one of the leaders. I'm, I'm part of the leadership team here, you know. And we went out to, uh, to a friend's uh, place, and, and they had a cabin out in the woods, and with its three-wheelers, we're riding around all day long, and, and I get on it, and the, the brakes were sort of messed up. They sort of worked, and, and all this kind of stuff, and I'm riding along, and I forgot about the 90-degree turn in the middle of the ride. Now, so I shove the wheel, go sideways, and we just, you know, me and the three-wheeler just go rolling, Okay nailed a tree, and the three-wheeler somehow landed right up and just kept going. And I'm just laying there with my, my, the wind just knocked out of me. You know, just for a long time. That's how these guys, uh, these guys feel. Emotionally, the wind is just knocked out of them. Things are going well, then all of a sudden something happens, and we might not even realize what happens. But all of a sudden, you're in a daze. You think you're happily married and so, boom, something happens and, and it messes that up. Or, or you thought your boss liked you, but they're really coming down hard on you. You're just like, I don't even get it anymore. You think your health is going well and all of a sudden, ha you know, something happens and you're just like thrown for a loop. You thought you were going to pass the course, but you failed the course. Thought your car was, was going to continue to run, but it broke down on you. And you can't even think and you find yourself with no energy. This is how the enemy of God felt at this moment. 
Well, since we've been in Joshua seven, you know, seven weeks now, you ought to be past the part, or, or you ought to be at that point of understanding that Joshua is also a metaphor for Jesus. At certain times in the story, we, we jump from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So we can stop and think about Jesus, in a sense, bringing us across that river. And, you know, and it actually is a Jordan River. It's the, it's the most mentioned site in the Bible. God is like our dad sometimes. He just keeps repeating the same thing over and over. You remember back to your childhood where your dad just kept repeating the same things over and over and over? And you're thinking, I get it, I get it. But, <laughs> but he's like, I'm glad you get it, but you're not understanding it. I'm glad you, you get it up here, but you don't know it here. You're not following through. Your actions don't tell me that you got it because you keep doing the same thing. Jesus goes through something that is supposed to be a barrier for us. Uh, you know, and, uh, and what is it like when, when Jesus goes through and he, he waits for three days? The Jordan River represents the death of Christ before it takes us into the promise. And we're gonna talk about the three days here in a second. And we go through that with him, and he goes through it with us. And some of our baggage, we're gonna end up leaving on the other side of the river. And Jesus is, is like one of the priests holding the ark, allowing us to make it through until the priest says, until when? Until it's finished. And death comes, you know, then death closed, closed behind them. And they were in the promised land near Gilgal. They'd finally made it uh, to that point. And the world knows about what just happened. And the enemies are all like, you know, the Amorite kings and the Canaanite kings, who, you know, who, who, who are literally Jesus' enemies. Oftentimes, we get tired, especially when somebody opposes us. And we automatically start to think that they are the enemy. We're like the disciples, right? Lord, can I call down fire from heaven on them? Can I just zap them with a lightning bolt? Can I just do something like that to take care of them? Because, because they're the enemy. And God's like going, no, that person I care for, that, that person I want in my kingdom, they're not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. The God of this world, not the God of the eternity. The God of eternity is God, but the God of this world, little g, is Satan himself. And that is the enemy. But, but, but we like to think of people who we're opposed to. And God is saying, how do you think they're the enemy? I don't get that. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves thinking, well, if we follow this train of thought, we start thinking everybody else is the enemy. We start thinking to ourselves, well, we're the only church doing it right. You know what I'm saying, Right? Well, you know, those other churches, they have church on Sunday, but, I mean, we do it right, right? And everybody goes, yeah, but that's the problem. Especially, the other churches are not the enemy. They're our friends. The world is not our enemy. The God of this world is our enemy. And we need to remember that as we look out and look at those people that think differently than we do. Give a little grace and God says, you don't even know who your enemy is. You ever hear, hear the term kicking and screaming? You know, I relate to that, that poem, The Footsteps, right? 
walking along the beach and there's two steps, you know, and all of a sudden there's one and, and the whole poem goes and God was just carrying you along and all. No, that, that's not mine. Mine is I'm walking along with God and then all of a sudden I see two like streaks of sand really deep as God is pulling me through life because I don't like something. That's me and God. God has to pull me through it, you know, get dragged. I'm like the little kid at Walmart with the leash, you know, get back here, you know. And I asked the Lord, well, where were you? And he says, really quiet, well, I was the one dragging you, you know. See, my life has been at one time or another a, a, a part of me just not getting it and God coming through anyway. Some of you are like, you know, uh, we, we like, you know, I crawl up in the God's arms. You know, Daddy, carry me. Daddy, I want to be around you. And I'm like, this can't be God's will. Come on. I'm out of here. I go find a tree and start climbing. God's just sitting there looking at me like, when are you going to come out of that tree? I'm like the kid swimming out in the ocean, doesn't know a, a big wave's going to come. And God's like going, don't, don't go out there. You're going to get hit. You know, my brother, he helped me out with youth ministry uh, when he moved out here uh, for a year in California. We were up in the Bay Area, and we went to a beach, and, and it was kind of a short beach where the waves would, you know, had pretty decent waves, and they were out there boogie boarding. But every so often, I'd wait, and I'd just watch, and I'd watch, and I'd watch, and then I'd go, hey, Josh! And of course, he'd turn around like this, and then a wave would just nail him, you know? Being a great big brother, right? You know? But that's how we are sometimes. God's like going, the, the wave's coming, don't, don't go out there. See, the people we think that are the enemy of God are probably kicking and screaming. The problem is we're all on the same beach and sometimes we get kicked by them, but they're not the enemy. Reality is they represent our relationship with God. And if you continue to build the relationship with God and allow him to fill you up, when you get bumped, what happens? What comes out of you? Man, it's so irritating to me because it's so irritating to me. It's irritating to me that I get irritated by the idiots on the road because what comes out of me? Oh, I can't believe that person did that to me. And then I go, I can't believe I'm getting upset about this. You know what I'm saying? What comes out of us when we get hit? Now, in reality, Christ does have enemies, just not always who we think. I know we're moving quickly through the scripture. Let's get to verse two. At the time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. Gebeth, okay, you can try to pronounce it. Now this is why he did so. All of those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. In other words, the parents made sure on the eighth day the law was followed, right? <laughs> Well, one generation did, but the next generation didn't. So this generation still had been sacrificed. All the people that came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. So not only, you know, had you had disobedience, it was a public disobedience. You had the golden calf. Remember 40 years ago, the golden calf, you know, going away from God. 
the law wasn't followed, but you also have this private disobedience. Now, why would you know? Why would you stay away from that? Well, in the desert, you get infection and all that kind of stuff. It's not that clean, and you know all these different things. But there's all sorts of reasons. But but they just didn't do it. And it says in verse six, the Israelites had moved about in the desert forty years until all the men who were military age, when they left Egypt, had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their forefathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in the place, and they were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they healed. I bet they did. I'm just saying, you know, I'll leave that alone, but I'm just, verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away. Now, when you hear those words, what do your mind immediately jumps to? The stone at the grave, right? I've rolled it away. The reproach of Egypt from you, so the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Now, what is this all about? It is an interesting text. And, and by the way, this is one of the good arguments for uh, teaching, uh, uh, you know, teaching topically, right? You get to skip these type of sections. But when you go verse by verse, book by book, you start going, well, I, I just can't skip it. I, we have to go through it. So what is all this about? Well, in Genesis 17, God established a ritual called circumcision, and it was a part of the covenant with Abraham, you know, the father of nations. So God takes Abraham to Canaan and says, this is your land. Everywhere you step, okay, well, when do we get to move in? Well, that won't happen for another 400 years, okay? Um, But I won't be, you know, Abraham's not going to be there at that time. But God's covenant still will be there. So I want you to put a mark in a place on your body where you have to be reminded several times a day and your wife will be reminded because back then only the only people group who were doing this were the Israelites. Then Moses comes along in Deuteronomy 10 and says, it isn't just about the physical part of the body. It's about the entire self. It's about who you are. It's about cutting away something of your heart and it represents your will in life, your courage. And I'm going to mark you so that you will remember. And you are different. And this is a covenant between you and I. 400 years they were in this covenant and didn't receive the promise. How quickly do we give up on the promises that God gives us? Would we last 40 years? Much less would we hand it down to the next generation or the next generation? So for the generations on the eighth day, they would do this to little boys and it would remind them of the covenant that God made to them. So Moses comes along and says it's about your will. And then Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 4. He he says it, it doesn't even matter now because the heart is so far gone because they were just doing it just to do it and they weren't remembering why. And he's like, you might as well just stop that. Because it is about God cutting away the flesh and filling it with his spirit. Then Paul comes and he teaches us in Romans. 
because the, you know, because the Jewish Christians were mixing with the non-Jewish Christians. And Paul says, don't even think about making them do that first. And we talked about that as we went through the book of Galatians. And there was conflict. And Paul says, don't even think about it. Just leave it alone because it's irrele- ir- irrelevant uh, to the purpose. Because it's about the heart. It's about who you are. It's about the things that you hold dear. Making you know, a mark on your heart that says, I am different. I am chosen. I am one of God's people. And this is why I live a certain way. So they're about to get the promise. They just have to correct one thing. And Joshua says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. And the men's reaction was, what? I mean, that would be my reaction at that age. And they're like, this is going to be painful, right? And he's like, yeah. Imagine them going, well, why didn't you? You know, it's our parents' fault. And he's like, sure is. Should have done it on the eighth day. It's not, you know, it's their fault, but we still got to rectify the situation. See, that's why it's less painful to do things God's way in the beginning, right? And rightly so, they could blame their parents. But their parents are gone now. So they have to deal with it. Might not be fair, but it is just. Sometimes it's painful to live in disobedience. Now, to me, this whole thing is kind of wacky. You know, the timing of it all. Wouldn't it have been, you know, better for them to do it on the other side of the river before they came over to the enemy side of the river? Can I get a head shake? Okay, because I can't see your mouth. I can't see if you're, you know. I mean. That would have been my plan because there's enemies over there. Why would God do this? But this is still his plan. It's not our plan. It's not his. You know, it's his plan. And if you try to, to, to fight and represent, you know, represent God before doing this, he's basically saying, you're just going to lose. So sit still and let me deal with it. Imagine the commanders. Uh, Joshua, uh, can we have a meeting about this? What, what are you doing? This isn't the way to lead. I mean, the enemy, they may attack any time now because we're in their territory. Imagine the wives. How do you tell the children why dad is hurting instead of getting ready for battle? You know, because the kids are like, why? 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 Because they don't accept the answer. Just don't worry about it. We'll talk about it later. They don't know why, you know. What happens if the people of Jericho find out that daddy is sick? Well, don't worry about it, son. Why? Because I said so. You know, finally got down to basically they're saying, be quiet, you know. And the best, you know, the best thing here uh, for, for us is this. God is fully able to protect his people when we follow his direction. Wow. When we live in obedience to God, he is fully able to protect us. And God is saying, I want you to live in obedience. I want you to follow who you say you follow. See, God is not logical in our sense, but he does ask for obedience. The relevance to us is this. Because circumstance, and, uh, you know, that, that's the norm now. We don't even really, you know, when we bring it up in church, people are like, mm-hmm. you know, we don't like to talk about it. 
But it's kind of normal. The Apostle Paul says to us, when I'm at my weakness, but I'm living in obedience, I'm at my strongest. See, we would have been, but not right now. And God is saying, no, now's the time. I need you weak so you can be strong through me. When I feel like I'm a loser, but I'm living in obedience, then God can begin to shine. God can begin to, to, to work through me to affect other people's lives. Now, when we feel strong, but we're, but we're not living in obedience, what usually happens? <laughs> we mess it all up, don't we? Oh, man, we totally mess it up. So listen to the Spirit today. Don't trust your feelings. Our problem is we like, we like our feelings. And God's sitting there going, but my feelings aren't over. In the, in the Bible, there's times when, when God has deep feelings. I mean, you read David in the Psalms and, and about worship, and we should have this deep feeling about worship. But there's other times God's sitting there going, I know you're going to feel this way, but my word says this, and you need to follow it. And we've got to take those feelings out of it. It's like a pilot trusting his instruments instead of his senses. You know, a small plane, you can actually get completely upside down if you're not paying attention and think you're straight up. Verse 10, it says, On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Imagine this Passover. Now, on the 14th day, we don't know exactly what year this is, but about April 1st for them. Their months start different than ours. They go by a lunar calendar. So here we see they're on the plains of Gilgal, and this must have been the most exciting Passover. They're actually in the land, and Jericho would have been sending out spies. They would have been watching what's going on and all that. And David wrote in the 23rd Psalm, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Wow. Talking about preparing a table and celebrating Passover in the presence of the enemies. You can imagine the conversation, especially those camped closer to Jericho. Because remember, one to four million people, okay? That's a lot of people. So some people were closer to Jericho than others, you know. And, and think about this. Jericho is only 10 miles from Jerusalem, you know, so some were a little closer. And they're probably a little kind of freaked out. The men are healing from, from their surgery. They're going through this special ceremony. What if they attack in the middle of the ceremony? Did you know that Israel's enemies did that on Yom Kippur in 1973? They attacked on Israel's holiest day, and Israel rose to the, to the challenge and defeated them. They're worried about the same thing just back in the time of Jericho. They're celebrating Passover. They're celebrating the Abrahamic covenant. They're celebrating their, their release from bondage. They're, they're celebrating the entrance into the promised land, even though they do not understand completely and how the, the bones of the lamb are, are broken during the celebration, you know, or, 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 or were not to be broken, and, and how the blood was, was, was to be spilt. And, and, and they, we take this right into our understanding of, of Easter, Verse 11, it says, the, the day after Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped that day, 
or the day after they ate this from the land, or food from the land, there was no, uh, no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Wow, imagine that, no more manna. I'm sure they wrote some songs celebrating this, you know what I'm saying? Have you ever eaten the same meal over and over and over again? Yeah. When I cook brisket, I mean, our family of four, I mean, we like our brisket, but I mean, the briskets are pretty big, right? And you eat on it for days. And by the, by the fourth or fifth meal, you're kind of like going, okay, I, I love brisket, but I'm, I'm ready for, you know, imagine 40 years. What's for dinner, honey? Well, tonight's menu is manicotti, you know? No one got that. Manna. Okay. Manna burgers and banana bread for dessert? Okay. And those that are drinking alcohol, we got red manna and white manna, you know, and Pinot Grigio manna. Okay, I'll stop because you're not just, you're not into it, you know. Manna salad and everything. Okay. But they're having food like they've never tasted before. Imagine the Amorite and the Canaanite kings. Here they thought they were having a good bumper crop, you know, for the year. And they're thinking, this is going to be awesome. And all of a sudden, four million people show up and start eating their crops. They're not too happy about that. More food than they could ever imagine. Two and a half million people show up. And God is going to provide for them. And it starts with a Passover meal. They eat the food of the land. You know, they're like, what is this? I don't know, but it tastes good and I like it. I don't want that manna anymore, you know? Are you going to eat that? Man, that sauce is good. Imagine the celebration. Now, here's a fun thing about this. God is going to provide them, you know, provide for them in a whole different way now. And God does this with us. He takes us through this wilderness period, this period of time, and he provides a certain way during that time. And then all of a sudden it changes. And all of a sudden, we're not getting that same provision because he, he gives us a different provision. And then all of a sudden, have you ever been there? And if you've been there, you understand. All of a sudden, money just shows up in your mailbox and you didn't even know where it came from. No note, nothing. And it just shows up when you needed the money. Clothing or groceries just show up or, or a place to live. And this is one of the ways that, that you know that you're in the wilderness. And one of the ways you can tell you're coming out of the wilderness is when this dries up and God just provides in a whole different way and he provides for everyone else. But you know what? In some ways you're going to miss that manna. You're going to miss that, that provision. And we're like, no, 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 no. I'm sick of manna. Really? Are you sick of waking up and knowing that God is there for you? Are you sick of constantly talking about God? Are you sick of, of God's provision? This is a part of, of God's training for our lives. It builds our faith and our future. And we can stand there in the middle of it. Or we can get out of the way and let God go through. You know, I'm so glad that God prepared me for this. This needs to be the attitude. And sometimes we say, you know, I don't like having to go through this. Can I go back to the, to the desert? I don't like, this is hard. You know, if you're going through a, a wilderness period in your life, it doesn't last forever. And we tend to forget that sometimes. In fact, it actually goes a little quicker when we live in obedience instead of fighting God on that. But for Israel, 
It was either going to be one year or 40 years, and it ended up being 40 years because God wanted it that way, uh, or not because God wanted it that way, but because of their own actions. See, God doesn't take pleasure in our wilderness, but he does provide when we're there. Verse 13, it says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. And really the translation is no. But wait a second here. What is Joshua doing out near Jericho? Well, I'm sure he's just bored out of his mind. All the men, they don't want to talk to him right now because he ordered you know, that thing to happen to them. So they're kind of avoiding him. They're laid up in healing, and as a commander and a former spy, he's doing his job. He's casing out Jericho. He's seeing what they're, they're, they're up against, and a guy shows up with a sword, walks right up, and he's like, well, well, you know, are you for us or, or against us? It's a guy on a mission, you know. Watch out for the boss when he's, on ta- you know, when he's in task mode, right? You just kind of get out of his way, and he's trying to figure out, okay, should I get out of this guy's way or not? Are you for us or for our enemies? And God says, no. Okay, well, you must not have understood me. So I will, I will, I will say it again slowly and loudly. Are you for... You know what I'm saying? You know how we do that? Somebody. Come on, people. Wake up this morning. And the Lord goes, no. This is like us. Lord, is it this way or is it that way? And the Lord simply says, No. Okay, no, 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 you don't understand, Lord. A or B? And he goes, no. And you're like, okay, okay. Door number one or door number two? And God says, no. I don't like playing your games. See, Joshua's about to figure, he's about to figure something out. It is not, are you on my side? God is saying, is it, am I on your side? We do this all the time with people. Are you a part of our fellowship? Are you part of that other dorky church down the street that meets at TCC and has Grady teaching all the time? (laughs) Are you a Republican? Are you going to hell? Yeah, you kind of laugh, but that's how a lot of people think right now. And it shouldn't be that way. Or for the insecure, do you like me or do I need to leave? He says, are you for us or for our enemies? And God says, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I've come now. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Josh changes gears here. He's maturing as a leader. He is on task. And the Lord shows up, and this is not an angel, because how do we know? Because it didn't say fear not. You know, every time the angel, you know, the angel of the Lord, in other words, you know, a, a real angel shows up, you know, it has to tell the people, calm down, calm down, fear not. 
But this is actually Jesus showing up. And Joshua looks at, at his name tag and says, wait, wait, you're the commander of the, the army of the Lord? Okay, okay, okay. Why are you calling yourself me? The same name, Yeshua. Yeshua. But you, you know, but, but, but Joshua is the, the vice commander. He's not the one in charge. Yeshua is the one in charge. See, Joshua doesn't argue here. He, he matures. He has a mature enough uh, belief in the Lord that, and recognizes the true leader. And he, and he does what he says, and he begins to worship God. And it says, And Joshua fell for, face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? What a leader Joshua is. God is calling people into leadership, and this is the role model for them. You, you know, uh, you, we all have gifts. We all have abilities, and that is great, but when God moves right with you, you need to sit down, and you need to say, what do you want me to do, and how should I worship you? Our problem is, it's become about us and not about him. We need to worship him. And they go on to conquer Jericho, and we're like, well, well, that's not fair, but the problem is that we need to be like Joshua. He is happy Jesus is here right now. He's not disappointed that he will not get the glory. And it's going to be the weirdest battle. And we're going to talk about that next week because I've ran out of time. But but it, it is such a weird battle. Because he's just cased Jericho and he's figured out there's no way to get inside this place. He has no clue how to take it. What message does my Lord, and the word is, Adonai, Adon, Adonai, have for his servant. Uh, and a word there you could put in there is slave. He says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And this is what I'm going to end with today. God didn't tell him to fall face down on the ground. He said, take off the sandals. God is not wanting to humiliate us. Our natural reaction sometimes when we get into the presence of the Lord is that that fear. Sometimes we look like idiots worshiping God. Some people just go, why are you doing that? We say, well, I want to be like this with God. I want to bow down before God. And they're like, really? We're like, yeah, because when Jesus invades our life, sometimes we end up looking weird. You mean you give money to God? Well, yeah. Well, that's just weird. Well, I'm sorry. That's what we do, you know? It's what God asks us to do. But God doesn't even ask Josh for his opinion. The Lord is totally in charge, and Joshua totally recognizes this. And the Lord starts out with this. Take off your shoes. Well, why? Because this place is holy. This is a whole Middle Eastern thing. We as Americans don't really think it, uh, think about it that much. Um, uh, you know, my favorite people, the Hawaiians, they, they do it more often uh, when it comes to taking off the sandals and shoes and stuff. But this is a, a real Middle Eastern thing. But the point is really that God is already there. And the battle is already won because he is already there. And that's what you need to think about this next week. What battles do you have that you think you have lined up? And guess what? 
God is already there and the battle's already won in one way or the other. It may be the way we think or it may not be the way we think because God's going to take down the walls of Jericho in a totally different way than any other battle formation has ever happened, okay? And they're going to be frustrated because it's not the way you do battle. And God's going, but this is how I'm doing it because I want everybody over there to understand you didn't do this. I did this. God gets the glory. Amen? Well, let's pray as Grady comes back up and finishes up with a song. Lord, I thank you for fighting our battles. I thank you for going before us. You already know what's gonna happen. Sometimes you use us in the battle in certain ways, Lord, and I pray that we, we recognize that. And when we come across you, Lord, that we realize that we're standing on holy ground that what you've done for us already is amazing. And we just have to, to see it. We just have to, to be there through it, knowing that you're in charge, not questioning things, but knowing that you are our leader in this life. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may you see that the battle is already won. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen, amen.